Chapter 18 of On a Donkey's Hurricane Deck. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. On a Donkey's Hurricane Deck by Robert Pitcher Woodward. Chapter 18 Champagne Avenue, Chicago. The whole duty of man is to be a mother. Jerome K. Jerome. One week of gambling in sporty, wide-awake Chicago, and of high life on the top floor of the auditorium, put me in fine fettle to resume travel. My second morning at the popular hotel, I indicted this note to an eastern friend. Breakfasted today on the roof, got a shine in the cellar, and met everybody halfway. For nearly five months, through severe winter and early spring weather, I had hustled, as I never had before, to make ends meet. Now I had swum the Hellespont to a prosperous shore. The remainder of my long, slow journey looked more enticing. Several valuable and useful articles were presented to me by wealthy admirers in the Windy City, who also dined me, took me to the theater, and entertained me in other ways. One evening I was pleasantly surprised to be escorted to a champagne dinner given by my friend Williams of the Union News Company of New York to several prominent businessmen of the West. When the sumptuous repast was well under way, he unpinned from the lapel of my coat a button containing a photo of Pod seated on Mac, and paid me a five-dollar bill for it, and learning I had a stock of buttons in pocket, the other guests followed suit. Such wholesale generosity was as overwhelming as my gratitude. The man with whom I contracted to advertise gave me a donkey, which I named Cheese, to go with Mac Aroni, and so delighted was Mac with this new comrade to share his burdens that, on my approval, he agreed henceforth to contribute to the papers every other letter on our travels to the coast, and so enable me to devote more time to breadwinning. Easter morning I found a blue hen's egg at my plate. I was pleased with the remembrance and had the clerk place it in my letter-box. When I called at noon for my mail, I was told the egg had visited most all of the letter-boxes, each guest in turn having disclaimed it, so when at six o'clock I called for the egg to take it to my room for safekeeping, and was handed instead a parcel that smelled of chicken, I was not surprised. However, upon opening it, I could not conceal my astonishment. "'Mr. Pod,' said the clerk gravely, the egg was handled so much that it naturally hatched. Certainly you are not surprised. Not surprised that it hatched, I returned, to be reasonable. But this is fried chicken, and the egg was boiled. My Easter dinner with friends on Champlain Avenue made me realize somewhat the stupor a boa constrictor experiences after having swallowed an ox. My friend Bob Williams urged me to make his home my transitory abode, arguing that perhaps while at the hotel I was cheated of needed rest by yielding too much to entertainment by well-meaning acquaintances. He gave me a key to the house, showed me my room, 
and told me to drop in any time, day or night, and make myself at home. Having promised to call on an elderly gentleman who had been very kind to me, I spent that evening with his family. Before leaving, I had made great friends with his little granddaughter and promised to call again and bring her some candy. I want circus candy, the kind with rings around it, she explained, drawing imaginary circles round her finger. When I reached my hotel, the clerk said several gentlemen were waiting to see me. I was sleepy. Besides, I felt I had caught cold and should doctor it at once. Explaining to the clerk that I was indisposed and begged to be excused to my callers, I slipped out the door and hurried to a drug store. A good drink of calisea will fix you, said the drug clerk, who explained it was well charged with quinine, but failed to mention it was also well charged with alcohol. I drank two glasses of it, then boarded a car for Champlain Avenue. Before reaching my destination, I fell asleep, but the conductor was thoughtful enough to awaken me and assist me to alight. I was so dizzy from sleepiness, I couldn't walk straight. I soon got my bearings, though, and reached Bob's house by experiencing sensations of treading a moving sidewalk, promenading a steamer deck in a high sea, and circumnavigating a crystal maze. I found the doorknob, but not the keyhole. We had been having damp weather, and I reasoned that perhaps the keyhole had shrunk shut. I searched my pockets for matches and found enough wooden toothpicks to kindle my wrath. While I was fuming, a policeman came to my relief. "'Who be you, young feller?' he interrogated. "'Pith, hic, Thagoras, Pod,' I answered civilly, and offering him the key, added, "'Won't you open the hic, door for me?' "'You don't live here, then,' said the cop. I know it, it, I admitted, just visiting friends. Are you sure you know where you're at? He inquired sternly. No, hic, I'm not sure, I said feebly, but I think I'm on Champlain Avenue. More like Champagne, he returned sourly. What's the number of the house? I forget it, I answered. I know the house, hic, though, when I see it. I think you came here for business, said the officer. You better come with me. And he locked his arm in mine. Let me ring up the folks, I pleaded. They'll identify me. The cop stopped, hesitated, and doubtlessly deeming prudence the better part of valor, let. When I took my thumb off the electric button, the household must have thought Chicago burning again. I heard Bob tumble halfway downstairs, and when he opened the door and identified me and saw me stagger in, he took another tumble. The third was taken by the disappointed cop, who hurried off to his proper beat. Conscious of my inebriated condition, I was much embarrassed that my friend should find me in such a state at that late hour. He asked me no questions, and I told him no lies. When he had assisted me to bed, he turned out the gas, which likely I should have blown out, and left me to prayerful meditation. My late propensity to sleep had vanished. My brain was a whirling wilderness. 
the more I thought about that temperance drink of Calisaya, the less respect I had for the principles of prohibition. I scored temperance societies, darn salvation armies, and cursed the birth of Matthews, who invented the soda fountain. Before long I was in a sweat. The red beverage was evidently breaking up my cold, but that wasn't all. It broke me up. It had broken the slumbers of my host. I was sure it had broken up my good reputation for sobriety. I was too nervous to sleep. Thinks I, a hot bath will just fix me. I'll get up and take one. I rose and hunted for matches, but couldn't find any. Piece by piece I scraped several ornaments off the mantel onto the floor, one bronze Mozart statuette doing some effective work on my big toe that I had intended a chiropodist to do. Next, I fell over a center table and upset a glass vase on the floor, which broke its neck. Then I tumbled over a rocker and wondered that I didn't break mine. Still bent upon reaching the bathroom, I bent my nose against an open closet door. I was mad. At last, finding the exit of my chamber, I groped my way into the hall, then hesitated. I thought I remembered the location of the bathroom. I was under the impression my bedroom was on the third floor. In reaching for the balusters, I almost lost my balance, my head still whirling like a dancing dervish. Slowly and dizzily I felt my way downstairs until I came to a door, the bathroom door, I supposed. I opened it gently, groped my way in, and put my bare foot on a napkin ring, which proceeded to roll away, landing me flat on the floor. Then the folding door swung to with a bang. I feared my friends would think burglars were in the house. But I found the tub all right. I turned the faucets and was pleased to have both run cold water, for I burned as with a fever. But when I started to climb into the tub, I found I had either grown shorter in stature or the tub had been raised. Perhaps it was managed by automatic machinery. I knew nothing about machinery, so with great effort I climbed up and into the tub, but found greater difficulty to get all of me in it. I reasoned that the dimensions of the contracted bathtub must be all right, but the expansions of my head were wrong. I was intoxicated by a temperance drink and had heard that it was the worst kind to get tipsy on. I made another heroic effort to jam my body into the tub, but some of me would always lap over the edges. I reasoned that if I were sober, there would surely be room for three to swim comfortably about that bathtub. Cold water ran from the faucets for some time, and I was considerably cooled off, when suddenly one faucet began to run hot water. Instead of turning off the water in my excitement, I tried to climb out of the tub, but was wedged so tightly in it a hasty escape was impracticable, and before I fell out on the floor my left leg was scalded. There were no pillows where I dropped, so the next moment the door swung open and the gleam of a lighted match shone in my face. I saw my host with countenance as white as his nightshirt suddenly assume a rosy hue. Then I heard him giggle. I was glad he saw some humor in it, for I failed to. In one hand he held an old army musket, and I told him not to shoot. Sitting on the floor, I now saw plainly that it was the butler's pantry and not the bathroom, 
and that I had taken a bath in the sink. Bob, on gaining my room, put some salve on my scald, and wound my limb with the first handkerchief he came across, and I was soon fast asleep. Next morning I remembered my promise to buy some candy for my little friend, and visited a confectioner. It was a big store, and three sales ladies tried to wait upon me. I wish the spiral-striped peppermint, kind of circus candy, I explained. It's for a little tot I am fond of. I understand, said the girl, but we haven't it. But wait a minute. Before I realized what she meant, she had dashed out the door, presumably to the store two doors away. I was sorry she took such trouble to please a poor patron. Soon she reappeared with a crystal jar of the long stick candy I desired, and dumping a pound of it on the scales, inquired, How much do you wish? Oh, one stick will do, I said. She's a delicate child. I don't want to make her sick. The girl almost dropped the jar. Then, recovering her mental equilibrium, she asked, while refilling the jar from the scales, Will you take it with you, or have it sent? I blinked. Take it with me, I guess, was my reply. As she wrapped the stick of candy, I reached in my pocket for the penny. Then I felt weak. I hadn't a cent. I, I, I declare, I exclaimed. I left all my money with the hotel clerk. I'll be back directly. And out I rushed into the street, where there was more air. By the time I got to the hotel and back, I was willing to buy five pounds of candy. I no sooner entered the store than the girl, with a smothered smile, said, We sent the candy to the hotel. Now I was embarrassed. What hotel? I inquired. Why, the auditorium, she giggled. You're Mr. Pie Pod, aren't you? The proprietor said so, and appreciating your immense purchase, desired to spare you all the inconvenience possible. I heard laughter in the office as I closed the door behind me. I dreaded to face the hotel clerk. As I strolled up street, I thought what a poor mother I would make even to one little child and tried to fancy the awful strain on Washington to be such a good father to his whole country. There was one thing that worried me generally when my meals were over. My hat. I feared I should lose it. The hat boy, clever as he was, by mistake might give it to another. Always when he handed it to me, I stopped to examine it carefully, to make sure it wasn't one of the stylish tiles which had presumed to associate with it on the rack. It was customary for me to question the custodian of hats in this manner. Is this my hat? Are you sure it is? When Tuesday evening my odd-looking stovepipe was handed me, I examined it incredulously, I the colored man, then stepping in front of a natty groomed gentleman of fifty, who had just received his latest Dunlap from the custodian, I scrutinized his hat inquisitively, then my own, and eyed him inquiringly, as much as to say, Are you sure our hats have not become exchanged? The dignified guest did not take kindly to my manner. He frowned, even looked savage. The darky seemed to think it funny, and laughed in his hand with back turned. I accompanied the old gentleman down in the elevator to the office, where we picked our teeth. Then I addressed the clerk in injured tones. 
I have a complaint to make. Let's have it, said the genial Harry. That black, blue-brown hat custodian at the dining-room is forever getting my tile mixed with those of other guests. I hate to make a fuss, but— You are quite right, Mr. Pod, said the clerk seriously. A first-class hotel should not tolerate such inefficiency in a trusted employee. I'll discharge the fellow at once. I stepped away, contented, and lighted my cigar. Then the stately gentleman addressed the clerk. Who in the damnation is that fellow? He's off his trolley. He thought this hat of mine was his, and that rusty, antediluvian, dilapidated specimen he wears was mine. What's his name? Why, Professor Pythagoras Pod, of course. Didn't you recognize him? Everybody knows him. He knows his hat, too, and don't you forget it. Offer him fifty dollars for his old tile and see how quickly he'll refuse it. The outraged dignitary shrank into his clothes and with a wry glance in my direction walked away. The custodian of hats kept his job, but I never saw the stylish gentleman again. End of chapter 18 Recording by Arnold Banner Thurmond, North Carolina